Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast brought to you by Second Day. My name is Maria Mathien, and every other week I'm sitting down with people who are building careers working on our community's biggest challenges. And we're using this space to not only prove that it is possible to build a career that allows you to do good for the world and do well for yourself, but to also demystify how to make that happen for social impact job seekers everywhere. This week, I am thrilled to be sitting down with Maxwell Akuamua Buatang. He is the Director of Operations in the Office of Children and Families in Philadelphia, overseeing the planning, alignment, and integration of services system-wide across all schools. He began his career as a teacher in a city that means a lot to me, Houston, Texas. He worked for HISD, the Houston Independent School District, and went on to hold various roles in the district. Max contributed to the development of the framework for launching and managing the first 60 community schools in HISD with the mission of Every Community, Every School, a comprehensive initiative to connect students to non-academic supports needed to improve their well-being and academic achievement. He holds the belief that by cross-sector partners collectively providing our children and their families with effective barrier-reducing services in tandem with strong academic experiences, we can truly meet the needs of the whole child and graduate students who are college and career ready. Max, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. When we first met, you had told me a story about coming to Syracuse as a 12-year-old with your family from Ghana. Your dad was getting his PhD and you mentioned that it was middle of winter. It was super cold and y'all did not know what you were getting yourselves into, which I can totally understand showing up in a city like that with just light jackets. But you were able to get what you needed from a church that was setting everybody up with jackets and all sorts of other supplies just to get you settled into your new home. And something that struck me is service and community has sort of been a part of your life really since then. And I'm curious specifically how you think your lived experience as a young immigrant shaped the way that you serve your students in your community now, the way you interact with them day to day, the way you think about what it is that they need or listen to the community around you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was a pretty pivotal moment as life is all about transitions, right? And with transitions, and this is what I learned, that community always is the way to be able to embrace people and help include them in the process. So I don't know what you need unless you tell me what you need. But in order for us to even get there, we have to have a relationship, right? And so moving to Syracuse and going through that transition, one of the things I felt was really pivotal was the way the church community welcomed us, the way the Ghanaian community that was already established there welcomed us and made us feel that there was always support. And so if we needed anything, it started that relationship of trust that we could lean in and get that support from the community. And so in my work now, I think a big piece of that has been learning how to build relationships at the front end and relationships with emphasis on trust and knowing that, again, that takes time and it also takes meeting people where they are. And so even thinking about the language barrier, we first moved here and we spoke the British English and sitting in a classroom and hearing someone say, you say period and someone says, no, you say full stop. And someone says, what's that? Then really what you what you mean is period. And so learning even a little bit of those language shifts, it all was because of the communities, right? My church community had an organization called Young Life that got us out. And when we were going out, I think actually the first, it was like the second day we were in the country, we went skiing for the first time, right? So we didn't have jackets and all those things were tough enough, but the church community gave us all of those things so we could actually enjoy the experience. A couple of weeks later, we went skating for the first time. 
who would have known you could slide on frozen water. So it was, it was very neat just to see how people reached out and use those experiences to build trust and build a better relationship. And as a result, we were able to get what we need because we could express, oh, what's that? Or, hey, how do you get this? And people were able to come to our back and call. Yeah, that absolutely resonates with some of the work that we do at Second Day because we work with mostly first-gen students. And one of the things that we saw over and over is how first-gen students had had a lot of experiences on their campuses where they didn't feel like they were getting the support that they need, that they weren't really being heard. So a lot of the work that we try and do at Second Day is just to develop trust, to ask questions, to not assume that people know things that they may not know. All of those sorts of little gestures really ladder up to somebody giving you that full line of communication, that trust, and then you can really work together to you know, reach the goal that your student, in my context, wants to reach. And so something that you're saying that really, I think is really important to name is with direct service work is it isn't just about providing services, it's about building relationships. So it's not just enough to hand somebody something that you think that they need, but really helping create scenarios in which they can experience joy and that they can really, you get to know each other as people more than just like a person in line that you hand something to and then the next person comes in line, right? So I don't know if that is sort of where you're coming from, but that's what I heard as you were speaking. Absolutely. And I think this is when we say like lived experiences, our lived experiences shape our idea of what the future is going to become and how much more we're going to lean into that. And I think although there are struggles that come along the way, those struggles are not to beat us down, right? So when I think about students and young people, we're in a process with them to gradually release responsibility. And so a part of that is also meeting them where they're at and letting them see that there's hope, that there's joy in the process, that there is excitement, but there also will be challenges in that process. And when you face challenges, challenge is not to steer away, but actually leaning in and figuring out how to use the resources that are available to you, which includes people, which includes materials, right? Which includes the environment that you're in. And that experience, I think a big part that for me was important is always finding the way to see people as people first. So I can give you all the resources that you need, but if I really want to help you, I want to involve you in the process. So you know how to acquire the resource in case I'm not there. And I think that's also something that I learned as a teacher earlier on. The gradual release of responsibility starts with setting the goal of where we want to get to and then talking through how we're going to get there. And it also allows people not to be surprised when things that you haven't considered come up, right? Because I think it's all about problem solving, again, as we get to that goal. And it makes the experience a little bit realistic. It makes it accepting. So students, especially at the young age, are not derailed by challenges, but they actually kind of lean in and acquire skills that helps them become people. And know that throughout your life, that's how it's going to be. There are going to be ups and downs, but you got to enjoy the ups and downs when it comes, right? You also got to know and feel the part of your human ability. So if you have to cry, you have to cry. And that's a part of getting yourself to a healthier place. And you have to lean into a friend. You have to be able to express what it is that you need, express what it is that you want. And those are all not isolated. Again, and it's like moments of trial helps you see why life is so important, but also at the same time, moments of joy helps you also value what life is. I love that. And you sort of, I think, answered a lot of this question already, but I'd love to specifically kind of transition this to why education for you, right? Like schools are obviously such a important space for students and their families, which I'd love to dig into. But I'd love to start with sort of how you got your start as an educator. We have a shared connection in this because I know you started your educational career in Houston, but I'd love for people to hear a little bit more about how you launched that chapter of your career. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I started my college career with the intention of becoming a pediatrician. I always enjoyed young people and children and wanted always to make sure that they were well, safe, seen, secure, soothed, all of those things. So as I was going through my academic experience that first summer, I decided to do research in a lab, learn how to use all those, you know, scientific uh, skills that I was acquiring. And then the next year, as I was learning more about the opportunities that I had to, for internships, this question of uh, research came up in actually like getting out into the community. And so I was able to get a grant to travel to Ghana and do a research on dental health care. Because I had also learned that a lot of our health is a result of how we take care of our mouth, right? So things get into our bodies through our mouth. And so I was curious to see how people practice good hygiene, but also in a place where I grew up because I wanted to understand how it better serve that community. So while I was there, that's when it really hit me as far as the power of education, because you can come and again, to the point of resources, you can give everyone toothbrushes and toothpaste. However, if they don't understand how to use it or don't continue to use it, then eventually it doesn't help in any way. And so while I was there, I learned a lot about how public health was actually going to be the key to helping people improve their well-being physically, mentally, emotionally, right? And so I came back the next year trying to figure out, okay, so what else could I learn more about that around public health that would help me become a better doctor one day? My junior year that summer, I did an internship in Portland, Maine with the public health division up there with the intention of learning more about public health. And surprisingly, Maine has the highest population of African immigrants, especially East African immigrants. So it was a really very neat, Portland, Maine, a very neat experience also getting to work with the immigrant population, helping people assimilate into American culture, helping them navigate resources within the city as far as like healthcare. And so I learned a lot that summer. But one of the things that I learned that summer was we went into a school as a result of an incident that was reported around bedbugs. And as I was talking to the family and learning more about their experiences, I started to realize, oh my goodness, this family has depending on the children to assimilate into American culture, to learn about the resources that are available, to figure out how to make decisions around the family and its structure. And it was like, wow, if we could educate the students to understand the power that they have, because again, we always say children are the future we could shift the discourse, right? And change outcomes for a lot of uh, immigrant families. And that's when the idea of education came in the big picture. Prior to that, I hadn't really explored it, although my father's an educator himself. So then I took a issues in education class my senior year. During that time, it was economic crisis. So there was not a whole lot of jobs as well. And one of my friends was like, oh, I'm applying to Teach for America. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, well, it's this organization that, you know, they engage recent college grads, they help you become a teacher, and then they help you, again, navigate how to uh, support uh, students and families. So that was the first intro to education. And I applied, I got accepted. And because I was an international student, they had the first international cohort uh, for Teach for America in Houston at the time. So that is how I ended up in education. That's very cool. I think one of the things that had come up, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's always something that I find really interesting and important in the work of social impact in general is this idea of how we've traditionally or like in the past, probably still in many places still do this now, but think about the link between education, direct service and community building. So for some reason, the first thing that popped into my head was the old school model of Tom's shoes, like sending a pair of shoes abroad and sort of just like handing things out saying like, here's a, yeah, here's a toothbrush, here's a pair of shoes. 
here's a, you know, clean water source, but not providing tools to understand why it's important and then how to maintain it and how to grow it yourself. And so it's just interesting to hear you say that because I'm curious and neither of us can obviously say in all certainty sort of where the culture is on this right now. But do you think we have done a better job now at understanding the nuance of direct service work? Do you think that there is more mainstream now to understand and invest time in the community? I'm curious to see like, from the time that you've been doing this work, do you think that we're getting better at thinking about it that way? Or do you think that there's still a lot of spaces that are thinking about it in a more traditional charity-based lens versus justice-based lens? Yeah, I think the pursuit for equity and also the introduction of new voices and ideologies into the space is helping us think about it differently. Have we gotten it right? Not yet. I think we have to also remember like years of practices and the financial structures that are set in place to make it easier for folks to donate their time and their money. And so I see even when you look at grants, like in order to be able to get a grant, there are certain things that you have to report out as far as outcomes, but those outcomes sometimes are not inclusive of the people that are actually serving, nor is it telling the story of the impact and also the catalyst that is created by an organization. And then also sometimes it takes time for us to get to see the results of an action that we took. But because everything is like transactional, we were quick to, hey, we delivered 15,000 meals to this community. That's it, right? And then we kind of move on. So we talk about the numbers rather than the qualitative impact, which I'm seeing that even in some of our data uh, stories that we're starting to tell, we are trying to get there, right? Get the feedback from whatever the community. And I've also worked with a few folks that have kind of taken the model of, hey, before we even implement this, let's get whoever it's going to be the end product to kind of come to the front of it. So that human design that it's called, and there's a lot of research now that is being done around it, right? So will we eventually get there? Yes, I'm very, very hopeful, especially considering how our young people are thinking about being inclusive and how they're pushing us to think differently, right? About the structures that we put in place to guide the work. Yeah, so I think a big piece of that structure is just like getting people to see that whatever we start now, whether we plan it or don't plan it, it's going to have a consequence at the end. And in order for us to have a, that positive impact, we need to continue to think about how we make more collaborative leadership table that has a lot of representation that has a lot of people with various lived experiences and thoughts. And before we even introduce the toothbrush into that mix as a resource, right? Let's figure out, is that even what is currently being used? How far is it from the best practices? Because one of the things I learned during that visit to Ghana that year was most of the people in the rural areas, like in the villages, actually practice better dental health than a lot of us. Because the moment they finished eating, they had these chewing sponges that they were chewing sticks that they were using to brush their teeth and get things that were stuck in their mouth out. And they did it so consistently that they knew even the different types of trees and its benefits, right? So the nim tree was like an example, it's like a painkiller. So some people didn't just use it to brush their teeth, but used it to relieve pain, whether it's pain in their gums, pain in their body, right? So there are all these practices and folks never a lot of folks, I have a dentist or I have braces, a lot of folks with perfect teeth because of those traditional practices. So to your point, just not assuming that, oh, this is an issue or, oh, they have this, so they're okay. But actually engaging people and helping them express what it is that they want, the things that they need. Yeah, that is absolutely where my head was at. And I'm glad to hear that. And I agree. I, I agree that we're making these sorts of conversations more normal and we're pausing now before we act. But I also, I was in a room recently with a lot of funders who are all like have business backgrounds and the models in which they think, the language that they use when it comes to 
is the work we're funding being successful is incredibly metrics driven and traditional metrics driven. And so there's still something very deeply rooted in this space that we need to push back on of how we measure success and who is in these conversations. And if they understand how removed they are from those spaces, right? I think we are still in a space where people with more you know, traditional business backgrounds are bringing a lot of the funds to get this work done. But I think making sure that they are self-aware that it's like, we are providing the funding, but we are not actually close to this issue. And we need to trust the people who are on the ground to like make the decisions that are best for the community and sort of be there to listen versus impose our own systems of thinking onto them, which is something I think we still see a lot in this space, but we're working, we're, you know, we're chipping away at it. So bringing it back to education, you worked at uh, Teach for America in the classroom for presumably two years. And then how did you get involved in some of the work happening in schools outside of just instruction in the classroom? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is part of when you become a teacher, you can't help but take on everything else that's happening outside of your classroom. Whether you were prepared to talk to Johnny about the fact that he got into it with his mom or not, it was going to come because that's the emotion right? that our young people also sometimes bring to the classroom. We can't dismiss it. My first year teaching is really when I started leaning a little bit more into the community work. So there was an organization uh, called Communities in Schools that was stationed in our school building. And they were there very similar to providing wraparound services and support for our students. And so a lot often, again, I have Johnny come in, Johnny's having a moment and I have to teach a whole lesson, right? So I can only talk to him so much. So I get an idea of what's going on. I say, hey, Johnny, take a break, go down to room 109, go see the, right? And so then Johnny would go, he would talk to them. And then during my off period, I would actually circle back with them to find out the details of what was going on and if there's any way I could help. And sometimes, you know, I would have to do a home visit as part of my role as a teacher, right? And so as I visit the home, I could have conversations with parents around, hey, I know that you're trying to support Johnny with this, but here's how he sees it. Can we work on something together to help him, right? Because he's a child, learn how to show you respect, right? And also adhere to some of the things that you're doing and also have his voice heard. And the beautiful thing too, is like, I was blessed to have education leaders at that time too, who understood that whole child approach and wanted to make sure I had the necessary training to be able to provide that, not just in my classroom, but even outside of the classroom. So a lot of the professional development that at the time that I received was around thinking about the community and the supports that were there and how we connect students to it. So fast forward, so I worked at the, my first school for three years and then got an opportunity to coach first year teachers. And that is when I actually started to engage a lot more with community partners because I could bring in different partners to my first year teachers to bring them into their classroom and have them also think about how they would support and navigate those resources for their students. Fast forward, went to business school. And at that time, a big part of our project was to focus on not just the business side of education, but also what are those holistic approaches that we take to becoming school leaders and what are those resources that are existing that we tap into as well. And that's when I started to take what I had done with my first year teachers and think about on a school level, if I was to have my own school, what are those supports that would be in place? What would that look like? How would I engage parents? And so as part of my internship, got to work with my principal to do that and start incorporating some of those. So when I became an assistant principal, I had the framework. And so we just started building family engagement and then community partners. And so we would have uh, what we call block parties. 
And so every six weeks when the report cards will come out that Friday, we'd shut down for lunch, open up, bring in DJs, bring in different partners and have tables around. And so as students are getting around having fun, they're also being exposed to service providers and getting to learn more about organizations, what they do, also getting to access some of those resources directly, bring therapists and counselors around, would have parents also come in and kind of see those resources. And eventually it started to take off from there, right? It became one of those things that you had community members wanted to support. They wanted to be a part of it. And that was where it led to building kind of like a bigger district-wide approach. And it fit right into those wraparound services that students and families needed. I see like such a direct link between sort of your second day in Syracuse going skiing and then jump to however many years later, you're creating block parties for community members. A lot of people may not realize is that Houston is the most diverse city in the country and building trust with a lot of different types of community and getting a lot of different people to come together and build authentic relationships is not an easy task. So shout out to you for taking that on and building a model that was clearly embraced by the entire district, which is amazing. And one of the things that I get asked a lot and I'm curious what your perspective is, having spent a lot of time in the education space, is one, Teach for America, obviously, and actually Teach for America, Venture for America, all these programs, the year that you're talking about, 2008, 2009, did really well because of the financial crisis. And I think we're entering a year of some economic uncertainty and nothing compared to what was happening in 2008. But you know, I see a lot of college students who are feeling a little anxious going into the job market. So we see our AmeriCorps partners, Teach for America partners, Venture for America partners are seeing a bit of an uptick in applications because people are like, oh, this is a secure path for the next one, two, three years. And then I can kind of move from there. One, I'm curious what you would offer to students who are thinking about Teach for America, but are not sure if it's right for them. But bigger picture, what your thoughts are on wanting to engage in the education space, create these wraparound services, be a resource to strengthen these educational institutions, but not necessarily feel like they are equipped or want to be a teacher in a traditional sense. And if what are the pros and cons of going directly into the more community-driven work versus starting in the classroom and then moving that direction. So there's there's a lot of different pieces there. I have a lot of threads going at the same time. So I'll, I'll let you kind of just run with it and see what sticks. Absolutely. And I think this goes back to the that question of like how we all add value to society, right? So learning is a key thing that we all do. There are some people who are able to pick up things very quickly and go with it. And there's some people who need a lot more time to process and grapple, right? The reality is there isn't a straight line to a profession that you want. There's always, you're going to have to go and try different things because through these experiences, you learn a new, new skills and you kind of learn about yourself. You learn about the gifts that you have. So I think I want to start there with young, anyone who's looking to transition from college into the real world and go into a profession. Just know that whatever profession you get into, you're going to have to create a resource that helps improve society and the lived experience of different people. So in order to do that really, really well, you don't need to rush. You'll get to where you're going to get to, but you have to also create more opportunities for learning experiences. So what do I mean by that? If you want to go into direct service, right, you can, knowing that wherever you go, that experience is going to help you learn and acquire skills that later on will help you with whatever else you decide to do. You may not even know. So my point, I wanted to be a doctor, but the skills that I learned in those four years of college helped me be able to do something completely different in education. So whatever profession you go to, the point is that you're going to need to know how to learn and apply what you learn into creating a product, a resource, an experience for people. And so if you choose to go to direct service, great. 
you'll have training there, um, which is a part of what we are actually encouraging a lot in these spaces. Like if people come and they don't have experience, the only way they get experience is if you give them. And that would mean you have to train them. And so what I learned from going through Teach for America, from even having AmeriCorps Vistas in our program and some of the schools that I've gotten to work with, we always have to onboard folks and help them understand the structures and expectations of their work. And then throughout time, we also have to provide coaching and support so they can do what they do really well, which is mimicking exactly what happens in the classroom. And lately, I've been coaching my team to think of work as in four years. You come in as a freshman, you don't really know much. So you're going to have to go seek out things and pick which one really kind of gels with what you're interested in and what you're really good at. And then from there, you go into sophomore year where you start to see some results of the relationships you built, the resources you've accessed. Now you can navigate a little bit on your own, still needing some guidance. So you have seniors and juniors who you reach out to to kind of help you figure out what you're trying to do. And then comes junior year, which by then you're like, I know the teachers, the professors, I know the expectations of the college or the educational institution. I know what we're like, what I can get out of it and what I want to leave out as a legacy. You're getting a lot of data coming back because you've seen your grades. You can validate and say, yep, I did this. I took this class. Yep. So someone says, give me guidance. You are an expert in a way. And then comes senior year. Now you've been through it all, but you got to get ready to transition. So a lot of it is you're also gradually releasing responsibility for the juniors and sophomores and freshmen. You're creating a space for others to feel safe and soothed, right? So if we think about experiences in that realm, that whenever you're new, you're going to have to figure it out. And then over the course of time, as you get better, you train the next set of people to take over. So my point in that is everyone actually is a teacher. You learn to become a better teacher over the course of time through that experience. And you gradually release the responsibility to others so that when you have to transition from a teacher to a dean, to a teacher lead, to an assistant principal, to a principal, you see that over the course of time, your career impact is becoming greater, right? I think for me, the decision to leave a classroom wasn't because I didn't enjoy teaching. It was because I wanted to have a greater impact. And the 200 kids, the students that I have was just a short box that I have to have impact. So when I saw, wow, now I'm an assistant principal, I have 500 kids that I'm responsible for in all these classrooms. And then I'm going to the district level. Now I'm a manager of these programs. I have five schools, five times 300, 400, 500. Now there's a lot of students that I'm having impact on. And now I lead an initiative of 20 schools and I have over 10,000 students that I get to have an impact based on the experiences that I get to create in partnership with all the principals that I work with. So you start to see a part, a part of that educational experience is learning how you learn, learning the skills and the gifts that you bring, and then figuring out how do you create that experience again over and over as you transition into bigger and greater roles. Yeah, that's what I say. Young people, just take one, experience it, learn from it, and then use it to create your narrative for opening the next chapter. That's such a fantastic framework for people to keep in their minds, because I think what I see so many young people do to themselves as they kind of want to enter the working world is they are putting a lot of pressure on themselves to have it all figured out and to know exactly what they want to do. And I think this framework is a really helpful reminder of like, when you were a freshman, you did not know what you were doing and no one expected you to know what you were doing. It was your first year there. So give yourself a bit of a break. And I think that I also love this idea that we are all teachers because I feel that that's true. But some people are also, for those who have practiced more humility and more openness, we know when we meet a good teacher versus someone who might not be as strong of a teacher. So rooting yourselves in those values, whatever it is that you're doing, I think is really critical. So I like how all of that fits together and that resonates a lot. But 
I'd love to talk a little bit more about sort of what you're up to in Philly now and some of the work that you get to do, maybe a project that stands out in the last year or so that you are especially excited about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So my work takes a lot of different phases. Basically, what we do in community schools in Philadelphia is we build partnerships to support improving educational outcomes, right? And so whatever goals the school community has, we try to find out how do we support those in addition to that, build in that civic engagement, right? So the community really is represent that community school is representative of it the community's interests, the community's aspirations. So some of the projects I've gotten a chance to work on, especially during the pandemic, we've had a lot of insecurity issues kind of become really prevalent, right? We knew these things existed before. However, the pandemic even brought it to light more transparently. So we've been able to coordinate partnerships around food security and access at all of our 20 schools. And we've had the opportunity to think about how we engage community within that. So what does the community want? What foods are they familiar with? What, which ones are they not familiar with? How do we build events and cooking tins to show people who are interested in learning how to cook, right? Those kinds of things, which becomes really exciting. And people always say, well, how does food have to do with students coming into the school to learn? Well, if you're hungry and you go to a meeting, you're not going to be as productive, right? And then over the course of time, nutrition also helps with developmental abilities, right? So how do we not meet our students where they are and their families, right? And helping address some of these challenges so that they can better come into a classroom and learn. So that's one big significant project I could say I've been really excited to, to see launch with just conversations, right? Hey, what is it that we can do better to support our youth in their classroom? And it seems like these things are happening outside, but again, knowing how it translates into the classroom. Yeah, I think that it's always interesting to me that, again, this might speak to sort of old school days of how we think about education. People were so fixated, I think, on purely academic results and test scores and all of these things. And it's been interesting to see the narrative slowly, but slowly shift towards it's not actually about test scores. Test scores are very limited in what they can tell us. And we're talking more about nutrition, mental health in the classroom, preparing teachers, obviously gun violence down here in Texas, big thing on, on teachers' minds here. So I think there is a lot more conversation around what can a school do for its community. And I think it's really cool to hear some examples of what you've been able to pull off in the Philly community, which to your point, 10,000 students, that's a huge number of people to kind of be working with. But something I also wanted to pick your brain on, because this is something I feel like I grapple with and a lot of other social impact leaders I work with grapple with as well, is this feeling that can sometimes gnaw at you, which is like, there's always more that you can do. There is always a greater need. Sometimes there's this frustration that like, I can't believe this is even a problem. I can't believe we have to even convince people that food in classrooms is needed, right? So I'm curious, like, how do you manage that feeling? Like, even with the scale of students you work with, does that feeling show up for you? And how do you think about the tension of the urgency of what your students need now versus bigger picture systems level change that needs to happen so that the work that you do isn't even as necessary, right? I'm curious to hear sort of how you think about that bigger picture question I think a lot of us are, are working through in social impact. I think this is going back to that pursuit of equity conversation. I think this topic has come up a lot. And the key to this whole thing is people don't know what the issues are unless they've experienced it, seen it, or tied to it. And so going back to the funders, a lot of funders who've had money and are already in the space and looking to fund things is because they either have a lived experience that they can connect it to. They know what it feels to be hungry. They know what it feels like to not have 
proper healthcare. They know what it feels like to not have access to something, right? And so they want to make sure that they help address that problem because of personal connection to it. In my work over the years, and even getting classroom resources to be funded. A lot of the story that I had to tell was to figure out how do I have someone personally connect to this lived experience right now that's taking place in our schools for our young people. There's a, an African proverb that says, not everyone has been an adult, but everyone has been a child. So a lot often it's like taking people back to that place so they can see, hey, if you're a child living in these conditions, how would you feel? Right. And I think it's when you tug on the hearts of people in that way, they get to kind of put themselves in a place. And those who are inclined to feel it would get there. And those who are more on the logical side, right, are also going to want to know, like, think about this condition. Does it make sense? Like, how does this actually impede success? And so there's like this cognitive, logical place that we take people on this experience. And there's also this emotional side that we also take people on this experience. And that's why I was talking about the data that we used to talk about our work sometimes can just be lacking humanity. But when you put that humanity in it, it makes people feel connected to, oh, this is an issue, not just for them over there or those kids, right? This is an issue for our children, because one day they're going to be running this country that we all lived in, and we're going to be retired and not really have much power. So in order for us to think about all of those things and address them, I guess it's like, how do we tell the story to make others realize that they also have a part in improving conditions for our young people and their families? I would say to my team, like poverty is something that we can't just slap a bandaid on and be like, yep, we solved it. We address poverty because we put these resources in play. A part of this whole thing is like, how do we get folks to experience it, come into our schools, come into our school community, see what's going on, elected officials, be a part of like, that conversation of what are we doing to actually improve conditions? Because it can't just be us, right? It can't just be the cousins that who are related to and we're the ones that are always constantly supporting. It has to be a whole community. So in our work, we talk about three things. We talk about collaborative leadership. So it's a table of people with diverse lived experiences, diverse perspectives, diverse networks, right? So that when we have an issue that come up, hey, we don't have food in the city, or hey, we don't have access to computers. That flow of networks, everyone's like, oh, how can we contribute to this? Financially, time, so time, talent, treasure, right? Can you give us your time? Can you give us your talent? Can you give us your treasure to help address this issue? And whatever that issue is, when we plug it in in that collaborative leadership table, someone somehow is going to help us address it together. The other thing is partnership. So collaborative leadership, partnership coordination, and then measurement and continuous improvement. So what do we talk about partnership coordination and why, why is it important? In the space that we're doing this partnership work, it's like a bucket. And this is something one of my principals explained to me. In a school, we have all these buckets of water. Think of the water as the children and there are holes in the bucket, the school building. So we are trying to find a way to plug all those holes with partners so that the water is not flowing out, right? We can contain it. Everyone can have a good experience. So we sometimes have to think about the different partners that are plugging at different holes because then we don't have conflicts. So as while the partners are trying to figure out how to get in the building and they're tackling over contracts and things like that, it also is interrupting the whole process. And famous African proverbs, as the elephants are fighting, who's getting hurt? And so we try to think about how we're doing that work in a way that it doesn't interrupt the flow of the educational process. It also doesn't interrupt the the joy and the harmony that we're trying to create in that community and if any enhances it. And then the last one is that measurement and continuous improvement, which again, we think about 
whatever it is that we're doing, what's the impact of it? And how can we make pivots based on that data that we collect? And so for community schools, that's where we've kind of found that as we even engage the community in telling that humanity story, it helps us look at the data different. To your point, there's someone who's there in the school community that knows that there's been five different car crashes at this corner. However, it's not because there's a lack of light traffic stop is the speed bumps. All those things might be there. All those resources might be there, but there's something else that's causing these things to happen, whether it's where the sun comes up or whatever that may be. But the people who are there would know exactly what is causing it. So the data might say one thing, but guess what? The safety metrics might already be in place, but something else is missing. So what is that? And how do we get to that information so we can accurately address it? There's something that popped into my head, which is, again, I feel like I keep bringing it back to like old school practices that I still see in the social impact space. But as you were giving that last example, I was thinking about stories that I've heard of foundations spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on conducting studies. When if you talk to anybody who actually does that work, they would just tell you what's going on rather than this need. But because there are so many people who are like, I need to see the data. I don't believe it unless I see it in numbers. Show it to me. There's We spend a lot of resources trying to get to the answer when a lot of people in the community would be able to tell you very clearly what's going on, which I just think is interesting. The other thing, it's like the data, once you do those research, right, the data is always behind. We're always constantly looking back to say, oh, this is what happened. So it might mean this. And so we're always playing catch up. And so part of what we've learned is how do we make decisions with the data live, right? So if we already have a cadence of meeting on a weekly basis, we get to catch the data live. So when we think about student attendance, Johnny missed today. So if Johnny missed today, we know he's not here right now. What actions do we take right now to make sure Johnny doesn't miss tomorrow? And I think it's like, even when we think about our emergency response in the nation, how do police respond to incidences? How do firemen respond to incidences? And taking that practices and thinking about, well, what does that look like in classrooms, in schools, in other spaces where we have to respond to crisis, right? Because a lot often that's what the cadence of those crises is what's interrupting the educational flow for our students. So this, and that's a part of what I talk about, like training people to think differently. So this pursuit of equity for our youth and our families, it really is about just trying to get people to shift their mindset from these traditional structures and traditional practices to these live, hey, what's happening right now? Because I, I say like the pandemic was really a good learning experience because Prior to that, there's been research around one-on-one student learning. Why was it important to engage our students on digital resources so they can get that one-on-one personal experience? And a lot of districts were really moving towards that. Why? Because, yeah, everybody learns differently. And so everyone needs to be at, met at a different pace and different structures needed to be in place. So not even not to say like the computers was going to be the one thing that solved everything, but it was what do we do knowing that our students are going to be creating their own jobs? They're already figuring out how to use these tools already. So why do we have to go back to projectors with the screen, with the transparent and put, you know what I'm talking about with the light? So it's like, okay, how can we be innovative away and keep up with the time so that our young people don't even lose faith in this educational practices? And at that time, it was like, wow, pandemic. Now we have to go to one-on-one. So now you're forced to have to have one-on-one interaction with students. And a lot of districts were trying to find a way to pivot and do it and learn from each other. But if we had structures already in place for us to practice what's in the know right now, for us to share information around, hey, we're doing this really, really well. Are you all doing the same thing? Hey, my fourth grade class is really doing poorly in this literacy area. 
what are you using? Because I see your grades, your points are going really well, right? So we think about all those collaborative leadership spaces where we allow folks to be able to grapple with information, share ideas, and then implement it, come back, continuous improvement again, right? Come back and say, hey, this worked, or this may not work for my school community because we don't follow blah, 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 or these structures are not in place. And then the next question is, well, what do we have to do to get those placed? But those things being done live. And I know that's where the funding piece comes in because anytime you have to do a new initiative, you got to go get money. So for me, the way I've been thinking about it is how do we get to practice these things at free or no cost? Can we already be doing the free part? So when we do get the resource and the funding, it actually further helps to scale the work and its impact. And a lot of those comes back relationships. Who do we connect with to talk to about these things on a smaller scale? And then slowly think about, hey, we were doing this for free. And here's what we've seen. Imagine what we could do if we have the money. And then we start telling the story differently. So that's kind of how I've been approaching things in my work is in how do we show people, hey, this little glimpse that you saw here, actually can make it bigger. Can you support us in doing this in this way? Can you allow us the space to do it? Can you allow us your time to do it with you? Can you allow us? And then once we do it and you see the impact to the traditional people, we can show that data to them and say, hey, you know what? We've been doing this all along and we did it with literally nothing, just the existing resources that we have. But here's what we're missing. Can you help us secure that? And to that point, it's like, once you see the data and the data saying one thing, once you hear the stories and it tugs it to your heart, And once you see the impact of what it could be, aspirations, there's no reason to say no. So that's like trying to shift and create these practices with existing spaces and then over the course of time, help it evolve. Yeah, I think that magic combination of data, storytelling and dreaming big is, I think, what so many of us are trying to aspire to. And when we create these narratives and try and share our our work out with the world, as we sort of come towards the end of this conversation want to bring it back to, I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast that are part of the second day community are thinking very practically about jobs and where to apply and what kind of jobs they should be looking for if they're interested in the education space. So I'm curious if you maybe have a couple of organizations that you would name, including maybe yours or others that you've worked with that you think are doing really great work. And bigger picture, I also think a lot of what you were sharing towards the end about building partnerships, being collaborative, being in community, all of these values that are so important to bringing about more equity and to not fall into old traps of how we've typically operated in these spaces. Do you have maybe some advice for people who are trying to identify organizations who practice those values, maybe questions they could be asking or things they could be even looking for on their website, maybe ideas there. So that's sort of a two-parter, but curious what comes up for you. There's a gift in going into spaces that you're unfamiliar with and trying to find ways that you can add your gifts to, to that space, right? So recently, as we think about jobs, there are these traditional jobs, union jobs, especially in Philadelphia, we have a lot of union jobs. And some of these union jobs need innovation in that space, right? Even the way we think about them. So I would say a lot of organizations who have traditionally been helping supply folks into that role is a good way to get in there and have us think about how we're doing that differently. So that would be one area. Another area, is in, and when I speak of that, it's like electricians, plumbers, right? All those um, career technical education type of work. Another set of organizations I would say folks should be thinking about, there are a lot of nonprofits who do workforce development work. And it's really great when you don't know what you want to do, because then you get to go on the same experience as the people who are also looking for jobs, right? And it becomes really realistic, like you're all grappling with the same idea. So with folks who have college degrees and have been to those institutions that have uh, taught them how to write, speak, and, and connect with people on that level, I think it's a gift that you can take into that space and help others 
grapple and build their resume, build out like their communication skills, build their professional appearance. And so that's also another area of helping kind of people navigate their way into, into work opportunities. So that's, that's another side. The other area that I also think about a lot is organizations that deal with supply and demand. So recently I've worked with a couple of nonprofit organizations who acquire resources, need volunteers, and need to help mobilize volunteers to be able to get this resource into the school community. Uh, so in Philly here, Cradles of Crayon, one that I think of, they have a, a, a massive operation and they do a lot of really, really great work getting resources to communities. And they're always trying to find talent to help them think about that, right? So anyone who has that engineering supply and demand, I guess, interest, I would say look into those non-traditional nonprofits, right, who are moving resources and kind of allocating things like that. And again, I think be open to not follow generic career path, but think about how your gifts and experiences can be used in different spaces. So tomorrow you decide, nah, education is not it. I don't want to be a teacher. Well, can you use that teaching protocol system to go into an uh, 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 even a corporate environment and help creating learning systems in that? And so just thinking about the transferable skills, I know one of my mentors always talk about that. What are those transferable skills that you can take from one place to another just to be able to increase the impact of what they're traditionally doing? I honestly have nothing to add on to that. I think that was really beautifully said. Max, I really appreciate you sharing so much of your insight into this work and everything that you're doing in the Philly community, which is a community that I, I love so deeply. And I just look forward to more conversations in the future. Thanks for having me. I look forward to learning from you all and some of the things that you've been doing second day. The Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast is brought to you by Second Day, an organization fighting to make social impact careers more accessible to all by dismantling inequitable talent pipelines into mission-driven industries. To learn more, go to secondday.org. I'd like to thank my producer, Mai Vo, for her incredible work in making this episode possible. Music used in this podcast is titled Blessed Time by Ketza. It can be found on the free music archive under the Creative Commons license. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to rate, review, subscribe. It makes a really, really big difference to our community. 